1: Um, If you're new here, my name is Mark, and if you're not new here, my name is still Mark. Okay, I stole that one from a Dimitri Martin, trademark, Dimitri Martin. Um, Yeah, so we've been spending quite a while now in the book of Revelation. We're getting near the end, um, and it's been amazing. We've been been seeing that it may be a little bit different than how we've heard it um, growing up if we've grown up in the church, and maybe it's been a little bit more hopeful, too, Today we're going to hear from chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 10. Pray, okay? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being here with us today. We thank you that in the midst of all of the distractions of this world, all of the calamities and pain of this world, all of the trials we endure, that we have hope for today, Then we have hope for tomorrow that's even better. God, would you speak to us in a way that convicts us and gives us hope, renews our spirits through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So to start off today, um, I wanna begin just by recognizing that our hearts and minds, both in our culture at large and also in our community in particular, as Chris kinda just alluded to, We've been exposed to an unusual amount of sadness in recent times, and so we've been in a pandemic, on the one hand, that's upended our sense of normal in our society, and it's become the source of great social divisions, too. Our own church community has had its own disproportionately large number of health-related calamities to weather, kind of one after the other. And some of you have borne these personally. And just this week in our country, a young man who's practically a child himself ended the lives of way too many nine and 10 year olds. And this just weighs heavily. I I listen to a lot of the news as I drive around. And man, usually it's titillating and interesting and and seasons like this both make me want to hear more because it's kind of like a train wreck, also just makes me want to turn it off, you know? Nevertheless, what shall we say to these things? So on the one hand, Paul gave us the words to say to these things in Romans 8, and I hope that these words have been encouraging to you in your home groups, if you're part of a home group. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Who shall separate us from the love of God? How does he answer? He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so God does not call our suffering good. He calls it bad. But in the midst of our suffering, he's here with us. And that's our hope while we breathe the air of the fallen earth and eat the food of the cursed ground. While we live in this world, there is suffering. And throughout that suffering, God is always with us. And yet, the reality is that suffering cries out for relief. And you may be asking yourself right now, where will that relief be found? The easiest places to look are right in front of you. Money and the things that money buys, those can bring relief. Power and success can bring relief. That sex without commitment and other physical pleasures can bring relief. Another call for parents to serve in kids' ministry, we're going to say prostitute again a few times this week, and we might talk a little bit about sex, so there you go. Um, but that can bring relief. Mind-numbing, scrolling on YouTube, Netflix, TikTok, those things can bring Relief. So all of these things, they have a magnetic pull, all of these things and more, but not because relief itself is a wicked thing to seek, it's because in our fallen world where we live right now, our hearts fundamentally long for relief. Relief is something that we need where we are now. And eventually, any short-sighted strategies that we have to get pleasure, glory, and relief from what we find right in front of us. They always bring us right back to the very same place that we started. Pain, emptiness, and ultimately despair. In other words, the pain of Babylon, we've heard a lot about so far, the pain of Babylon, the kingdom occupying our world right now, has fooled us all into seeking comfort in the joys of Babylon. But, Babylon is a destroyer. So where does this leave us? Do we simply suffer under Babylon through today and every tomorrow, knowing that Christ is with us in our suffering, comforting us? No. As we saw last week, there will come a day when Babylon and all who hoped in her will be destroyed. And this is our ultimate hope. All of the tragedy surrounding us, and invading many of our lives all too personally, is in one sense God saying to us, Babylon is not a home worth seeking. Babylon is a parasite and an oppressor. Babylon is an invasive species on this earth, masquerading as a king. Good news is that Babylon's days are numbered. They're coming to an end. This week, the good news gets even better. We have hope for today because God is with us in our suffering, but if we are in Christ, we will not continue to suffer for every tomorrow. If we're in Christ, we have hope for a better tomorrow that is as much greater than our suffering as Jesus is better than our enemy, the devil. So if chapter 8 was saying, everything sad will be untrue, Our passage for today is saying, everything good is going to prove to be more true than we even know how to imagine. Everything good is gonna be more true than we even know how to imagine. That's our hope in the midst of this suffering. It's not just that the source of our pain will go away through its own self-destruction either. It's not just gonna slink off leave backstage. Babylon isn't simply going to destroy herself. Instead, we are going to be rescued. We're going to be rescued. The true king, the king of kings himself, is coming. He's going to slay the mighty dragon that terrorizes our city. What's more, not only is he going to slay the mighty dragon that terrorizes our city, but he's coming to make us all his bride and to bring his perfect city here to us forever. So you may have looked at the kingdom of God, and you may have looked at the book of Revelation as fundamentally something about God taking his people out of this world. It's not about that. He's going to destroy the parasite who oppresses us, named Babylon, and he's going to bring his kingdom here, and we're all going to get married to him. So that's our sermon for today. The king of kings is going to slay the mighty dragon, and he's going to marry the girl. That's it. Let's pray. No, okay. <laughs> let's, so let's get ourselves situated in this text. Uh, the text begins with two words. It begins by saying, after this. And so if... If if you've done the great work of getting yourself past the stage of Bible reading where you tune out and just hear holy voices saying words, you know, um, then you may be asking, after what? What's it after? Um, so, just to situate ourselves a little bit here, it's after what happened in chapter 18. Pretty simple. Um, in chapter 18, God gave John a vision of what his final judgment would look like on the earth where Babylon reigns. And now in chapter 19, God gives John a vision of what his final judgment looks like from the perspective of heaven where the Lamb reigns. So this book, especially Revelation, can be really confusing if you try to look at it in terms of this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. It It's not so much that, as we've seen all throughout the study of Revelation, it's more, here's Here's what this is going to look like if you're standing here. And here's what it's going to look like if you're standing here. A lot of the book, here's what right now looks like if you're standing here. And here's what right now looks like if you're standing here. Um, So that's, he isn't saying after everything that happened in chapter 18, everything that's going to happen in chapter 19 is going to happen. He's saying, hey, first I had this vision, and then I had this vision, and they're both about the same thing. I was just looking at different places when the same thing happened. I hit rewind and moved rooms, okay? So that's where we are. On the earth, in the kingdom of Babylon, there's gonna be weeping and mourning and shock among all the citizens of Babylon. That's what chapter 18 was all about. But what's it gonna be like in heaven? What's it gonna be like when our king comes in heaven? Is it gonna be weeping and mourning and shock not for those who hope in the Lamb and his kingdom. When we turn to look from heaven's point of view, we see a dramatic shift. Here's what we see from chapter 19 and verse 1. We see it says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power, Belong to our our Lord. So while here on earth the saints, being us, may seem weak and meek, in heaven, the saints are crying out with a loud voice and in a great multitude to the glory of God. You feel weak? You feel alone? Heaven doesn't or the, the Bible doesn't say that's not gonna happen here. So your hopes have not been dashed. But here's our hope. In heaven, the saints cry out with a loud voice, a powerful voice, and they're not alone. They're in a great multitude singing to the glory of God. The way many people talk about Jesus in the gospel, it can make it sound like Jesus gives us hope to live better now. And that can either be so discouraging to those of us who are really hoping in the gospel and trying to live faithfully. The other thing it can do is it can make us hope in Babylon and call that hoping in Jesus. Jesus gives us hope to live better now is not the gospel. Jesus did not come to make you a better person. He came to make you new. And so that's not really hoping in Jesus, it's really hoping in Babylon. The truth is, when we're standing here in the kingdom of Babylon, things can look bleak, and following Jesus can actually make it harder rather than easier. There's, there's a really famous book that's called "Your Best Life Now." It's not what Jesus promises. He promises your best life later in my kingdom, and it's going to blow you away. That's why we need to know that Babylon is not the only place we will stand. Because it can look bleak here, and following Jesus can make it harder rather than easier. So we've got to know Babylon isn't the only place we're going to stand. The saints standing in heaven today, and the saints standing in heaven, there are saints standing in heaven today, and they're looking forward to the same thing as the saints standing in Babylon today. We're all looking forward to the day when the kingdom of heaven is going to be destroyed. Or the kingdom of Babylon. (laughs) The kingdom of heaven isn't going to be destroyed. The kingdom of Babylon is going to be destroyed, and the Lamb is going to bring his kingdom to the earth, and all the saints are going to be vindicated through God's righteous judgment, and no one's ever going to mess up when they're reading their notes. (laughs) So that's why in chapter 18, people were saying, alas, alas for the great city all of those who hoped in Babylon, all of those who were so impressed by its riches, when they saw it tumbling down, they said, alas, alas, for the great city. But in chapter 19, it's a different song. In chapter 19, the same thing is happening, but we're standing in heaven. And in heaven, the song is hallelujah. Babylon has been destroyed. When the lamb comes to judge the earth, The citizens of Babylon will sing a dirge, but the citizens of heaven will rejoice. So why are these saints in heaven singing hallelujah? Which just means praise God. Why are they singing hallelujah? Why are they rejoicing in the glory of our God? It says, they sing this, for his judgments are true and just. So anytime you see the word for used this way, it's a synonym of because. They're singing because his judgments are true and just. So much of this world can seem unjust sometimes, doesn't it? But we know his judgments are true and just. And this song tells us two reasons. First, because God has not let evil go unchecked. We see another four. for his judgments are true and just. That's why they're singing. But why are his judgments true and just? It says, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. See, there there was a really great mystery between Genesis three, when sin entered the earth, and the cross. And, And the great mystery there was just this question about God's righteousness, just lingering, because God had passed over so many sins. Is God cool with sin? Is He okay with it? We know He loves us, we know He's given mercy to His people, but how the heck could that be? The cross finally answered that question because justice for sin fell on our Lord Jesus, and God was vindicated as righteous. But another question lingers now between the cross. When our sin has been paid for and the final judgment, a different question is lingering, and that's, I know that sin has been paid for on the cross, but if Christ is king, why is the world still so unjust? Why do God's people still suffer? That question lingers in the world we live in right now. I just said Following Jesus doesn't bring your best life now. That's a mystery. But, though there are many ways to answer that question, one of the most important comes in this heavenly song and what we just saw. The suffering of God's people won't be forever and it won't be forgotten. We know that God's judgments are true and just because he will judge the great prostitute and bring all the power of Babylon to a complete end Secondly, we, it says, his judgments are true and just for, so secondly, he, he's judged the great prostitute who, correct, who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. He has avenged on her the blood of, of his servants. So if we're even close to seeing ourselves rightly here, this should knock us over to the ground. How can God avenge the blood of such wretched sinners like you and me? How is that even possible? We haven't even gotten a fraction of what we deserve for sin. If our blood was shed by anyone, didn't we deserve that? And it's true that much of our suffering in this world comes at our own hands because of our own sin. You know, you know, my, my wife is an educator and she deals with young children, and a term that I hear a lot is something called natural consequences. You know, there there are consequences that can be imposed. You know, the most classic is the paddle. That's a an imposed consequence. A natural consequence is you do what you do and let's see what the effects are, right? We experience a lot of natural consequences which are negative. There can be positive natural consequences, but we experience a lot of natural consequences which are negative. Our works work themselves out on our own heads, right? Um, And that's a thing that really happens here. But we also suffer because of the sin of others in this world. We don't just suffer because of ourselves. So so everything that we've done to earn suffering, Jesus paid for that already, right? We might experience some natural consequences here and there, but we're never going to experience punishment from God. Jesus took that from us. But here and now, we also suffer because of the sin of others in this world. And Jesus said that we are not better than him. He's our master. The world hated him because he belonged to the heavenly kingdom and not Babylon. And so the world does the same thing to us. Because we belong to Christ, this will not go unpaid for. So it may look like the wicked prosper, like we saw in our confession, which I relate to. I think you probably do too. I looked at the prosperity of the wicked and it almost killed me because I wanted it so bad, right? It may look like the wicked prosper here. It may look like there's no punishment for sin and for those who sin against you, but just wait is what John is saying to us here. Just wait. To hope in the the coming kingdom of Christ is not ultimately an advantage to us here and now in this world. Hoping in Jesus is not likely to make you comfortable, loved or rich here and now. Babylon and heaven are at odds and therefore Babylon wants to and does draw blood from God's church. Make no mistake, every drop will be avenged. Every drop will be avenged. So we don't have to seek our own justice here and now. And we don't have to despair here and now because Jesus will bring justice on our behalf. The same Jesus who bore the punishment you deserve will bring punishment to your enemies. So we know that God's judgments are just because He puts an end to wickedness and He makes all of our wrongs right. And we need to know this in order to live for heaven in the midst of Babylon. It's not a losing battle, it's not a losing cause. Because Babylon calls us so convincingly through all of the pleasure she promises and all of the pain she brings. She brings pain that makes us want relief, and she says, here it is. Like a drug dealer, first one's free, you know. To resist that, we need to know that God's judgments are just, and they are certainly coming. And God's judgments are just, and God's judgments are certain, And therefore, the song of heaven is this. Hallelujah. The smoke from her, the great prostitute of Babylon, goes up forever and ever. No phoenix is going to rise out of these ashes. She's done. Though the princes of Babylon hate and laugh at the lamb who was slain, they will not have the last word. The final word on Babylon is that it will forever be a heap of ashes, smoking to prove its destruction. It's not that God or his people love destruction or violence. God doesn't, and we shouldn't either. Rather, it's that Babylon herself is a destroyer. As she promises riches and pleasure and comfort, she enriches just enough of her citizens to keep her promise believable, and then she tramples on the rest. Even more, she hates God. She hates God's people. So we rejoice in the destruction of Babylon because when Babylon is destroyed, the lifeblood of destruction itself will have been taken away. And don't we know this to be true? Almost in scary ways in our own hearts, we know this to be true, that Babylon is a destructive force in this world. Think of some of our cultural heroes, what happens if we follow in their footsteps? I don't want to shame anybody you know, by calling out their heroes by name, so I'll just make one up. Um, we'll call him Elon Musk. Let's take Elon Musk for example. <laughs> he, he really has some interesting ideas, right? And he has some technology that I hope really benefits our world for years to come. But, but just look at this. In 2019, he made 40,668 times more from Tesla than a median Tesla employee. is that insane? Well, he must be a standout. No, he's not. It's not just him. At more than 50 companies in the US, workers would need to work 1,000 years to make what their CEO makes in just one. The ethic of Babylon says, I'll promise you one if you help me get 1,000. If we follow the ethic of Babylon, we'll do the same thing without even realizing it. We might not be trying to hurt anyone, but we will as we enrich ourselves. So we, not, we may not be one of these CEOs, but how attractive is their life and position in our eyes, and how much of this type of thinking is functioning in all of our hearts? Babylon is full of people trying to make themselves into gods on the backs of other people and she's so good at deceiving us that most of the time we don't even know we're doing it. So when the citizens of Babylon find someone willing to give more than he takes, Babylon's a net taker. When they find a net giver, what happens? It keeps on flowing. They build a city on his back, and they make him take up a cross. That's why heaven rejoices at her destruction. When all of her promises go up in smoke, and she's nothing more than a heap of ashes. Destruction itself will have been destroyed. But this hasn't happened yet, and our comfort is still to come. Which brings us back to something that we've heard over and over again throughout the preaching on this book of Revelation. Throughout the preaching on John's Revelation, we've heard this phrase, the already and the not yet. The already and and the not yet. This means that the kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is going to come. So that's confusing. But as confusing as this may be to wrap our heads around logically, to say it has come and is coming, um, isn't this exactly what the Christian experience is like? Isn't this what it feels like to know and walk with Jesus? Our sin has already been paid for. We already have the Holy Spirit with us, comforting us, and making us more and more like Christ. We've already been reconciled to our Father God, and we've already been reconciled to each other. And yet, we still live in Babylon. Our bodies still get sick and die. We still sin, and we still get sinned against. So when we believe the gospel and receive God's grace, we taste the ways that the kingdom of heaven is already here while Babylon is simultaneously beating us down with the not yet. One way we experience the already of the kingdom of God is in what we're doing right now in worshiping God. You see a picture that looks so much like what we're doing right now. Right in our passage, it says, And from the throne... Came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And so, what we're experiencing right here and right now is the kingdom of heaven itself in miniature. It's not the final thing, it's not perfect, but it is the kingdom of heaven itself in miniature. We started our service today with a call to worship. And in heaven, there's going to be a worship leader calling us to worship. That's what we see in verse 5. He's not going to talk into a microphone. He's going to be before the very throne of God. And it's not totally clear if this is Jesus or if this is some ministering spirit right next to Jesus coming from the throne of God. But the effect is the same. From the throne of God is going to be someone calling us to worship saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So throughout this passage, we've seen and will see the saints, which is just another way of saying Christians. Singing praises to God together, because the Lamb and all he has done and all he will do is so great. And one of the most heavenly things we can do is show up on Sundays and pray, hear the word of God, And sing our hearts out to our god who is with us and who's coming it's not the only heavenly thing we can do but it's one of them we see a picture that looks so much like what we're doing right now that's what it's going to be like in heaven it's a taste the kingdom of heaven when we get there we won't just be singing about god's destruction of babylon we won't just be singing about his righteous judgment which brings our relief the destruction of Babylon does bring us relief, but there isn't only something bad on its way out, there's also something wonderful on its way in. It's not that just the parasite is leaving, it's that something new is coming back. Next, God gives us a vision to let us know what that is. The text says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, Like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! There it is again, praise God. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So in a way, this should call our minds back to the garden once again. God made Adam a perfect man. Adam looked at all the animals and named all the animals, and none of them was suited for him as a helper or a partner. So God stole one of his ribs and made a woman, and at last he said, "'This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh.'" And in the New Testament, it says that woman is the glory of man. Does this diminish women? No. The glory of man is this other sex. The same way, this harkens back to it. When we see Christ in his glory, what do you see him with? You see him with his bride. Us. We're who he came to buy. So while Babylon promises everything, but brings us nothing but destruction— the Lamb, the King of Heaven, is so, so different. The Lamb will not only deliver us from our suffering, but in His kingdom, we're also going to share in His glory as His bride. Can you even imagine that? Does your heart go toward that sort of generosity in any way? The culmination of the glory of God, just like with Adam, the culmination of His glory was Eve culmination of God's glory is going to be us. What in the world? I have none of those impulses. I don't want to share like that. When we see the lamb in his final glory, we're going to look at a groom and his bride together, and we're the bride. The song is going to be, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for Because, why are we going to give him glory? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. We're giving God glory because of the marriage. And his bride has made herself ready. Everyone in heaven is going to look at us and say, wow. Jeez. There are parts of me that I lose sleep over. This is what it's going to be like in heaven. One of the reasons we will give glory to God is that the bride has made herself ready. And yet within this, there's a bit of a paradox. If you've walked as a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably asked yourself this question, is my relationship with God about me seeking him or about him seeking me? What's this all about? Is it about me seeking him or is it about him seeking me? That's an important question isn't it? And if we read the Bible, we see James say, faith without works is dead. That's no kind of faith. But we also see Paul say, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith without deeds is dead, and the one who does not work. How do we reconcile that? There's just a couple examples of a paradox that repeats over and over and over, starting in Genesis, and now near the end of Revelation, we hear it again. So we've seen already that the bride has made herself ready, and that's really just this heavenly song's way of saying, hey, I've looked at this bride, and she looks good, okay? Nevertheless, this heavenly song does not let us ignore the question of, how did the bride get dressed up to look so nice? Why is she looking so pretty? First, it says, it was granted to her. It was granted to her to clothe herself with linen, fine and pure. See, this bride, she doesn't get the right to wear these clothes by her own merit. This is a privilege that had to be granted to her. These clothes, in one sense, are an unearned gift she's wearing. And that's the reality of living as disciples of Jesus. We don't have any good standing before God of our own. We can't earn his favor. Instead, we have a righteousness which was given to us, bought by the Lamb of God and by his blood. Our beauty is granted by our God, not earned by our efforts. And the worship song ends here when it says, the Lamb gave his bride a dress to wear and she looks good. But... John doesn't stop when the song stops. John keeps talking, and he provides some unexpected commentary for us. He says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But whose righteous deeds are these? They're ours. We're going to be wearing our own works somehow. And if you know yourself at all, this should leave you breathless. The beautiful clothes that we, the bride of the Lamb, will be wearing will be made out of our very own righteous deeds. And on the one hand, we should see a parallel here between the two kingdoms, Babylon and the kingdom of the Lamb. You see, Babylon has no wife. What does Babylon have? Babylon has a prostitute. Babylon has no lamb. Babylon has a beast. Nevertheless, When you look at the prostitute, what was she wearing? You see some parallels. She was dressed up too. Chris talked about it. In chapter 17, it tells us that she is arrayed in purple and scarlet. And chapter 18 gives commentary on these clothes, calling them fine linen, much like our clothes at the marriage of the lamb. And what's more, the prostitute has some works to show. She's holding a cup full of abominations and the impurity of her sexual immorality, just the Bible's way of talking about idolatry. Each kingdom has a girl, and each girl is a beauty. However, the works that each bride carries with her speak to the worth of the kingdom to which she belongs. Prostitute has no staying power. You use her for sex, and then you lose her. She uses you for money, and then she loses you. The bride, on the other hand, has rights. The bride has obligations. The bride is secure forever with her husband. And the amazing thing is that in heaven, the bride isn't just wearing hand-me-downs. Instead, she's wearing linens, which are her very own righteous deeds. See, the reason that Babylon was such bad news to the saints and her And her destruction was such good good news to us. When we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we don't just get a new passport that lets us into a better kingdom. We don't stay the same. When we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not by our own merit, as a gift, we get new hearts. We didn't deserve these new hearts, we didn't earn these new hearts. Nevertheless, these new hearts beat for heaven. We get new ideas that come from heaven. We get new hands that do heaven's work. So in many ways, being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven makes us poorly suited to live in the kingdom of Babylon. But nevertheless, we don't belong to Babylon. We look forward to the Lamb's coming kingdom. And looking forward to that kingdom makes us live according to the customs of that kingdom. Just like me being hungry makes me eat pizza. When we hope in the coming kingdom of the Lamb, hoping in that kingdom makes us live according to that kingdom's customs. Not perfectly. We still need the blood of the Lamb. But truly, really, it's small measures. This new, this new way of being, it doesn't come from within ourselves. That's why we needed to be granted the right to wear these pretty clothes. And yet, we really do live this way in measures. And so when we're granted to put on fine, pure linen at the final marriage supper of the Lamb, it's going to be our very own deeds that adorn us. When Christ looks at us, he will say, look how beautiful you are. Not going to be lying. And when the host of heaven sees us, they're going to say, look how powerful the Lamb is. Because they knew who we were. We knew that we were natives of the kingdom of Babylon. Now we're wearing a dress of pure fine linen, which are our very own righteous deeds. Something amazing happened to us. Which begs the question, does your faith in Jesus make you do righteous deeds? Or are you waiting out the clock, living it up in Babylon, till you show up, on what you hope to be your wedding day in heaven, saying, where's my dress? Heard my husband made one for me. Do you do righteous deeds, on the other hand, because you believe the lamb is everything you need? Or are you trying to please him by your own efforts? Are you trying to earn his love with your good deeds? Does your faith have deeds? And do your deeds have faith? Those are the questions. We will never be good enough to merit the Lamb as our groom. But when we hope in Christ, we will act like we are hoping in Christ. You cannot hope in Christ without hoping in Christ. We're going to act like it. And in so doing, Christ will be making us beautiful. He's the one giving us the gift of faith. He's going to be making us beautiful, both by what he's already done in us, what he's already done for us, and what he's doing in us right now. So whether it's what Christ has done for us or what Christ has done through us, it all speaks to his glory. It's not that our glory isn't really ours. It's that Christ was the one who made us hope in him, and hoping in him is the thing that makes us beautiful. And here's how John finishes his record of this vision. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so we've seen something like this happen multiple times, and I have a tendency to talk for too long. So we're not going to talk too much about falling down in front of the heavenly creature and worshiping him. We know that it's just so glorious that it happens, that it's not the right thing to do. We're, we're going to end on this. Early in the series, we noted the fact that prophecy means more than what we think it means. We often think that prophecy is something that tells us the future. But it's not always that. And in fact, it's not even mostly that. If you look at prophecy in the scriptures, it's not Usually, future telling. As G.K. Beale has said in his commentary on the book of Revelation, prophecy is both forthtelling and foretelling. Forthtelling just means, hey, here's something true and I'm going to bring it forth. Foretelling means telling something before it happens. Prophecy is both. And most of the time, when you see it in scripture, it's the forthtelling, not the foretelling. So, prophecy is simply telling the truth as God inspires the prophet to tell it. And all truth worth telling is ultimately really just talking about Jesus and how great he is. So, let's close today on this fact. Everything true is ultimately a testimony of the glory of God and Jesus Christ. Everything true is ultimately a testimony of the glory of God and Jesus Christ, whether it's a true tragedy, true celebration, or a true hope that we look forward to in the midst of both. Whether it's the destruction of Babylon the destroyer, or the marriage of the lamb and his bride the church, or the right the bride has been granted to wear fine linens, or the invitation you got to the lamb's wedding, or the fact that the fine linens we wear are our very own righteous deeds, Everything God wants to say to us, if we dig deep enough, is really just the testimony of Jesus. That's what John means here when he says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All truth-telling is ultimately telling the truth about our King Jesus. That's what our lives are all about finding out. Every way that that's a mystery, that's what we spend the rest of our lives figuring out and solving how's my dinner about Jesus? I don't know. Let's work it out. We're going to have a dinner, and that's about Jesus, isn't it? We're going to declare his death until he comes again. That's what communion is doing. This book that we've been reading, rather than being a decoder key for the future, is really just a song with many verses. Every one of those verses is saying one thing, Jesus has done great things. Jesus is doing great things. Jesus is going to do greater things than you can even imagine. Let's join in that song. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.